Welcome, Grace Griffins, to the second part of the reading of Dorothy Sayers' The Lost Tools of Learning. Let us now look at the medieval scheme of education, the syllabus of the schools. It does not matter for the moment whether it was devised for small children or for older students, or how long people were supposed to take over it. What matters is the light it throws upon what the men of the Middle Ages supposed to be the object and the right order of the educational process. The syllabus was divided into two parts, the trivium and the quadrivium. The second part, the quadrivium, consisted of subjects and need not for the modern the, the moment concern us. The interesting thing for us is the composition of the trivium, which preceded the quadrivium and was the preliminary discipline for it. It consisted of three parts, grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric, in that order. Now the first thing we notice is that two at any rate of these subjects are not what we, we should call subjects at all. They are only methods of dealing with subjects. Grammar indeed is a subject in the sense that it does mean definitely learning a language. At that period it meant learning Latin, but language itself is simply the medium in which thought is expressed. The whole of the trivium was in fact intended to teach the pupil the proper use of the tools of learning before he began to apply them to subjects at all. First he learned a language, not just how to order a meal in a foreign language, but the structures of a language. A language, and hence of language itself, what it is, what it was, how it was put together, and how it worked. Secondly, he learned how to use language, how to define his terms and make accurate statements, how to construct an argument, and how to detect fallacies in argument, his own arguments, and others, other people's as well. Dialectic, that is to say, embraced logic and disputation. Thirdly, he learned to express himself in language, how to say what he had had to say elegantly and persuasively. At this point, any tendency to express himself windily or to use his eloquence so as to make the worse appear the better reason would no doubt be restrained by his previous teaching in dialectic. If not, his teacher and his fellow pupils trained along the same lines would be quick to point out where he was wrong, for it was they who had to seek to persuade. At the end of his course, he was required to compose a thesis upon some theme set by his masters or chosen by himself, and afterwards to defend his thesis against the criticism of the faculty. By this time he would have learned, or woe betide him, not merely to write an essay on paper, but to speak audibly and intelligibly for a platform, and to use his wit quickly when heckled. The heckling, moreover, would not consist solely of offensive personalities or irrelevant queries about what Julius Caesar said in 55 BC, though no doubt medieval dialectic was enlivened in practice by plenty of such primitive repertoire, but there would also be questions, cogent and shrewd, from those who had already run the gauntlet of debate or or were making ready to run it. It is, of course, quite true that bits and pieces of the medieval tra- traditions still linger or have been revived in the ordinary school syllabus of today. Some knowledge of grammar is still required when learning a foreign language, perhaps I should say is again required, for during my own lifetime we passed through a phase when the teaching of declensions and conjunctions was considered rather reprehensible, and it was considered better to pick these things up as we went along. 
School debating societies flourish, essays are written, the necessity for self-expression is stressed, and perhaps even overstressed. But these activities are cultivated more or less in detachment as belonging to the special subjects in which they are pigeonholed rather than as forming one coherent scheme of mental training to which all subjects stand in a subordinate relation. Grammar belongs especially to the subject of foreign language and essay writing to the subject called English, while dialectic has become almost entirely divorced from the rest of the curriculum and is frequently practiced unsystematically in out-of-school hours as a separate exercise, only very loosely related to the main business of learning. Taken by and large, the great difference of emphasis between the two conceptions holds good. Modern education concentrates on teaching subjects, leaving the method of thinking, arguing, and expressing one's conclusions to be picked up by the scholar as he goes along. Medieval education concentrated on first forging and learning to handle the tools of learning, using whatever subject came handy as a piece of material on which to doodle until the use of the tool became second nature. Subjects of some kind there must be, of course. One cannot learn the use of a tool by merely waving it in the air. Neither can one learn the theory of grammar without learning an actual language or learn to argue and orate without speaking about something in particular. The debating subjects of the Middle Ages were drawn largely from theology or from the ethics and history of antiquity. Often, indeed, they became stereotyped, especially toward the end of the period, and the far-fetched and wire-drawn absurdities of scholastic argument fretted Milton and provide, uh, and provide food for merriment even to this day. Whether they were in themselves any more uh, hack, hackneyed and trivial than the usual subjects set nowadays for essay writing, I should not like to say. We may ourselves grow a little weary of, quote, a day in my holidays, end quote, quote, what I should like to do when I leave school, end quote, and all the rest of it. But most of the merriment is misplaced, because the aim and object of the debating thesis has by now been lost sight of. A glib speaker in the Brains Trust once entertained his audience and reduced the late Charles Williams to helpless rage by asserting that the Middle Ages, uh, in the Middle Ages it was a matter of faith to know how many archangels could dance on the point of a needle. I need not say, I hope, that it is never it never was a matter of faith. It was simply a debating exercise whose set subject was the nature of angelic substance, where angels material, and if so, did they occupy space? The answer usually uh, adjudged correct is, I believe, that angels are pure intelligences, not material, but limited, so that they may have location in space, but not extension. An analogy might be drawn from human thought, which is similarly non-material and similarly limited. Thus, if your thought is concentrated upon one thing, say, the point of a needle, it is located there in the sense that it is not elsewhere. But although it is there, it occupies no space there, and there is nothing to prevent an infinite number of different people's thoughts being concentrated upon the same needle point at the same time. The proper subject of the argument is thus seen to be the distinction between location and extension and space. The matter on which the argument is exercised happens to be the nature of angels, although, as we have seen, it might equally well have been something else. The practical lesson to be drawn from the argument is not 
to use words like there in a loose and unscientific way without specifying whether you mean located there or occupying space there. Scorn and plenty has been poured out upon the medieval passion for hair splitting, but when we look at the, the shameless abuse made in print and on the platform of controversial expression with shifting and ambiguous connotations, we may feel it in our hearts to wish that every reader in here have been so defen uh, defensively armored by his education as to be able to cry distinguo. For we let our young men and women go out unarmed in a day when armor was never so necessary. By teaching them all to read, we have left them at the mercy of the printed word. By the invention of the film and the radio, we have made certain that no aversion to reading shall secure them from the incessant battery of words, words, words. They do not know what the words mean. They do not know how uh, to ward them off or blunt their edge or fling them back. They are a prey to words and their emotions instead of being the masters of them and their intellects. We who were scandalized in 1940 when men were sent to fight armored tanks with rifles are not scandalized when young men and women are sent into the world to fight mass propaganda with a smattering of subjects. And when whole classes and whole nations become hypnotized by the arts of the spellbinder, we have the impudence to be astonished. We dole out lip service to the importance of education, lip service and, just occasionally, a little grant of money. We postpone the school-leaving age and plan to build bigger and better schools. The teachers slave consci conscientiously in and out of school hours, till responsibility becomes a burden and a nightmare. And yet, as I believe, all this devoted effort is largely frustrated because we have lost the tools of learning, and in their absence can only make a botched and piecemeal job of it. What then are we to do? We cannot go back to the Middle Ages. That is a cry to which we have become accustomed. We cannot go back. Or can we? Distinguo. I should like every term in that proposition defined. Does go back mean a retrogression in time or the revision of an error? The first is clearly impossible, per se. The second is a thing which wise men do every day. Cannot. Does this mean that our behavior is determined by some irreversible cosmic mechanism, or merely that such an action would be very difficult in view of the opposition it would provoke? The Middle Ages. Obviously, the 20th century is not and cannot be the 14th, but if the Middle Ages is, in this context, simply a picturesque phrase denoting a particular educational theory, there seems to be a no a priori reason why we should not go back to it. With modifications, as we have already gone back with modifications to, let us say, the idea of playing Shakespeare's plays as he wrote them, and not in the mo modernized versions of Khyber and Garrick, which once, once seemed to be the latest thing in theatrical progress. Let us amuse ourselves by imagining that such progressive retrogression is possible. Let us make a clean sweep of all educational authorities and furnish ourselves with a nice little school of boys and girls whom we may experimentally equip for the intellectual conflict along lines chosen by ourselves. We will endow them with exceptionally docile parents. We will staff our school with teachers who are themselves perfectly familiar with the aims and methods of the trivium. We will have our buildings and staff large enough to allow our classes to be small enough for adequate handling, 
and we will postulate a board of examiners willing and qualified to test the products we turn out. Thus prepared, we will attempt to sketch out a syllabus, a modern trivium with modifications, and we will see where we get to. But first, what age shall the children be? Well, if one is to educate them on novel lines, it will be better that they should have nothing to unlearn. Besides, one cannot begin a good thing too early, and the trivium is, by its nature, not learning, but a preparation for learning. We will therefore catch them young, requiring only our pupils that they shall be able to read, write, and cipher. My views about child psychology are, I admit, neither orthodox nor enlightened. Looking back upon myself, since I am the child I know best, and the only child I can pretend to know from inside, I recognize in myself three stages of development. These, in a rough and ready fashion, I will call the pulparrot, the pert, and the poetic the latter coinciding approximately with the onset of puberty. The pull parrot stage is the one in which learning by heart is easy and, on the whole, pleasurable, whereas reasoning is difficult and, on the whole, little relished. At this age, one readily memorizes the shapes and appearances of things. One likes to recite the number plates of cars. One rejoices in the chanting of rhymes and the rumble and thunder of unintelligible polysyllables. One enjoys the mere accumulation of things. The pert age, which follows upon this, and naturally overlaps it to some extent, is only too familiar to all who have to do with children. It is characterized by contradicting, answering back, liking to catch people out, especially one's elders, and the propounding of conundrums, especially the kind with a nasty verbal catch in them. Its nuanced value is extremely high. It usually sets in about the lower fourth. The poetic age is properly known as the difficult age. It is self-centered, it yearns to express itself, it rather specializes in being misunderstood, it is restless and tries to achieve independence, and, with good luck and good guidance, it should show the beginnings of creativeness, a reaching out towards a synthesis of what it already knows, and a deliberate eagerness to know and to do some one thing in preference to all others. Now it seems to me that the layout of the trivium adapts itself with a singular appropriateness to these three stages— Grammar to pull parrot, dialectic to the pert, and rhetoric to the poetic age. This is the end of part two of our reading of Dorothy Sayers' The Lost Tools of Learning. Look for part three next Saturday that will be released Saturday morning. Once again, thank you so much for your time and see you soon.